Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. My guest is Nicole M. Boyson, the Patrick F. and Helen C. Walsh Research Professor at the Damore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University. We will discuss her article, The Worst of Both Worlds, Dual Registered Investment Advisors, which is available now on SSRN. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be here. And I'm I'm so glad you you came on. I know that this paper is uh, it's a working paper. It's preliminary, uh, and you're still working on it. But it is such an exciting piece. Uh, it it strikes me as something that's just tremendously significant uh, for understanding what's happening in the investment advice space and what people face when they you start saving for retirement. So thinking about this and and how to you know, get our listeners into it, I, I know that not everybody is as obsessively interested in the regulation of investment advice as we are. <laughs> so, so you call it the worst of both worlds, which, which I'm going to guess that means that there's at least two different worlds here. What are, what are these worlds? Yeah. So in the investment advisory space, if you're looking for somebody to help you manage your money or give you some advice on financial planning, you really have two options. You can go to a traditional old school broker and you can think about movies from the 80s and 90s where people are on the phone yelling and screaming and buying stocks. And a lot of old school brokers are going to be, some of them put themselves out as investment advisors and brokers. The key difference between brokers and the second type of advisor I'll talk about is that brokers are paid a commission and they're transaction based. And so if I work with the broker and He's going to help me pick some investments. He'll make some recommendations. And then when he buys those stocks or mutual funds or bonds or whatever product, um, you know, I decide is best for me or he helps me decide is best for me, he will collect a commission on that. So it's transaction based, commission based. And that's historically the way it's been. There are some differences that we'll get into, but just to kind of think about it as two worlds, you've got the broker side and then you have the registered investment advisor side also known as RIAs. Now, RIAs are registered with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and registered investment advisors are held to a slightly different standard than brokers. Right. And this is, of course, changing as we speak with some new regulatory requirements that are coming in. <laughs> but historically, um, registered investment advisors were, were legally required to register with the SEC, which meant they had to file a bunch of paperwork. And they historically and, and currently are held to what's called a fiduciary standard, which means they have to act in an investor's best interest, disclosing conflicts and um, letting their investors know kind of, you know, what they're doing. And so you can think of, again, as two space, brokers, salespeople, transaction-based, registered investment advisors, advisors, um, typically they're paid slightly differently. Um, the, the, the standard way that they're paid is as a percentage of assets. So if you have a million dollars and they charge you 1%, now I have to do math on the fly. Um, that's $10,000 a year. Um, and, um, and that would be kind of a standard thing where again, in the brokerage space, it would be a one-time commission. And again, these are very, very much oversimplified, but generally that's how we think about it. So what happens is that 
you can be a broker or you can be a registered investment advisor. But interestingly, most participants in the space are actually both. And so that's where the sort of worst of both worlds comes in. Many of the big firms that you can think of, think of Ameriprise, LPL Financial, Cetera. These are all firms that employ both registered investment advisors and brokers. And so my paper tries to look at that intersection and talk a little bit about some of the conflicts that arise when your advisor slash broker is sort of serving two masters. He can either charge you commissions or charge you an asset-based fee. You can do the, you can be the same client. It can be the same broker and he can have two different roles with respect to you. And if it sounds confusing, oh. it is confusing. Oh, it, yeah. I, I try to teach this with, uh, with, with hats. Oh, perfect. And so when, you know, when we're, we're interacting in one way, we'll, we'll have one hat on. And when we're interacting in another way, we'll have another hat on, but it's the same person. Yes. And sometimes the same client. And, you know, there are reasons why it might make sense in some cases. If, if I'm um, selling you insurance, that is a commission-based product. And, you know, life insurance, for example, is a reasonably good product that many people should have. If that same agent decides then to act as an investment advisor for your investment account, then he might switch on his other hat and charge you an asset-based fee. And so um, while there may be some some reasons for it, in general, my empirical research, which is detailed and careful, and, and I look at it as many data points as I can, finds that on average, when investors um, are clients of dual registered advisors, meaning they wear two hats, like you say, typically that turns out to be not great for the clients. Ooh. Oh, when you say not great, uh, what, what, what are we seeing? Are they, are they paying? So, so I guess you're, you would compare them against um, registered investment advisors that are not dual registered? Yeah, that's a great point. And so in my paper, there's kind of, I guess, three subsets, although one of them I don't focus on at all. Um, they're sort of the brokers only. So you're old school broker only. You don't hold yourself out as a registered investment advisor. You're just a broker. On the flip side, you have independent registered investment advisors who aren't also working as brokers. And we can call them um, can call them independent just for a, a nice sort of shorthand. And then again, the majority of the individuals in this space are going to be dual registered. Most of the assets are held by dual registered advisors. So you're right. The comparison group would be truly independent advisors that do not hold a um, that do not hold a registered representative license and are um, you know again they may have conflicts of interest but they're a lot different than the brokerage space right so so how much money are we really talking about here uh, well like- interestingly I wrote this down from my paper because I want to make sure I have the numbers right. So let me take a peek at this. Um, it's big dollars. And so right now, 2016 is the last year in my sample. There's about $6.3 trillion in the dual registered um, space. So again, these are the Ameriprises LPLs of the world and about $1.5 trillion managed by independent investment advisors. And I should note that I'm excluding mutual fund companies here. So mutual fund companies fall under the, the I guess, the, the umbrella of independent advisors. But I really want to focus here on um, the clients of um, advisors that are holding themselves out as we're going to actually give you advice directly or we're going to work with you one-on-one and help you make some investments. So although mutual funds kind of are regulated under the same umbrella. They're not in my sample because what I really want to focus on is advice given mostly to retail investors. So about 1.5 trillion in the 
um, independent space, about 6.3 trillion in the dual registered space. So significantly more, but both, you know, these are big dollars. Oh yeah. So, so how are, how are these dollars distributed across the American population? Like it's, I, I know that a lot of independent firms will have um, account minimums uh, for you. So we'll only service an account if there's more than uh, you know, $100,000 in assets. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I don't, unfortunately, the data don't allow me to sort of figure out exactly how many dollars are in kind of small clients versus larger clients. The bulk of those dollars are likely in bigger clients. If you want to use 100000 as the cutoff, most of the assets, and that's partly just by definition, are going to be sitting there. But interestingly, again, from my research, most retail clients who call it under $100,000 in assets, and by the way, the average American family has about $24,000 in investable assets. So this is sort of the typical American family that's looking for an advisor is right. likely to go out. And if, if they're going to look for an advisor, they're probably going to end up using one of these dual registered advisors, again, like an Ameriprise, like a Wells Fargo um, for their money. This is partly name recognition. And so right. if you're going out and you're looking for an advisor, it's kind of hard. I mean, maybe you have right. a friend and he knows a guy and, and you know, word of mouth will get you there. Or maybe you're lucky and your next door neighbor is a is a truly independent advisor, and that's fantastic. But most of it is going to be you're you're going to know somebody, or you're going to know the name, or maybe you get a, a you know postcard in the mail that says "Come to this free seminar, and you can have a steak dinner, and we're going to talk to you." <laughs> I've I've uh, you know I've I've represented some people who've been to those steak dinners. Those dinners <laughs> are very interesting. So for whatever reason, the uh, the world thinks my husband is the big decision maker in our family. We're pretty even handed, and he gets. I would say probably 10 or 15 of these a year, you know, somehow we got on somebody's list. We haven't gone yet, but um, it is pretty entertaining. But yeah, so, so, you know, there's just the name recognition, the knowledge, but also reading the regulatory filings. It's very clear that these dual registered investment advisors are willing, at least they state that they're willing in their in their regulatory filings to take smaller clients where most of the larger independent registered investment advisors have higher minimums, call it half a million dollars. Now I should caveat that. I have talked to dozens of people who work in this space, many of whom are independent advisors, and they say, we will take smaller clients. And so some of it's just not obviously disclosed. Um, but again, if it's the smaller advisors taking the smaller clients, I still think it's probably the proper conclusion that most retail dollars that have an advisor are probably with these dual registered guys. Oh yeah. No, it, it's, it, they're just, they're just so large. Uh, yeah. and it seems like they're also able to move money over from the broker side, uh, to their registered investment environment. So, so if you've got someone, uh, let's, let's imagine you've got, uh, you know, somebody who's in their fifties, uh, they've, they've had a brokerage account with them for a long time. They've got a lot of money in it and they're in these, uh, awful mutual funds that are underperforming, charging too much in fees, uh, but they can't really sell them any more of those mutual funds. Uh, you know, it's hard to do additional transactions and justify it. Right. If they're going to continue uh, drawing fees off the account. If they, if they transfer it over to the RA side, they can then ladle up, you know, stack another 1% fee on top of it. Is that is, sure. it, is there more to it than that, or is, is it what, what's what's happening when the money moves from the broker side to the the RA side of these dual registrants? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I think you know one of the things that happened, and um, 
I know we sort of talked a little bit about about sort of this process. And so um, I, I think I want to talk just for a second about sort of the history of this and how this has all kind of come about. Is that kind of sure. reasonable thing? Go back to like 2007, right? Yeah, exactly. So so let's even go back to 1990 just for a quick second. Oh, oh yeah. So, yeah. The so in, 19, so in 1990, Merrill Lynch started charging um, asset-based fees, which is just percentage of assets. So like I mentioned before, you know, 1% is kind of the number that you hear thrown around. Although my research shows that for retail clients, it's probably closer to 2% a year, but we'll come back to that. But Merrill Lynch started charging asset-based fees in their brokerage accounts, recognizing that, and some of it was very innocuous. Some of it was actually really good for clients. So you might have a client that's trading like a maniac. Um, Trading costs were much higher back in 1990 than they are now. And so it actually was in the best interest of some of their clients to charge them an asset-based fee. That way, you know, the the broker could sort of buy and sell as needed and um, the client was actually paying a pretty fair price. Now, that wasn't all of it, but that was part of the initial motivation. But Merrill really started to realize that this was a great deal. Um, you charge 1% a year. It's an annuity. You really quite, no, I don't mean a financial variable annuity. It's just a, a fee. Annuity. Right. They get, they get paid every, every they year. They get paid every year. And it's a pretty And when the market goes up, their fee goes up. Exactly. And so that aligns interest and all these nice things that we professor types like. But it also means that, you know, revenues can be pretty substantial. And once you get a client in that sort of 1% fee, you're going to, you know, collect that fee directly from his account, it's sort of, you know, the client kind of doesn't notice it anymore. And I'm not saying that's necessarily shady. It's just sort of one of those things that you're paying that fee, you're, you're um, working with his advisor, and that's how it works. And so Merrill started doing this in 1990. And in 1995 or so, they started to get a little anxious. And they said, well, you know, hey, SEC, is this cool? And the SEC, interestingly, said, um, well, we don't know. Why don't you go do a study? So they they commissioned Merrill, who was the initiator of this process. Other firms started doing this as well when they realized that this was a good deal. They commissioned Merrill to go do a study, and Merrill did a study, and the outcome was that the SEC in 1999 proposed a rule that said, hey, it's totally fine to charge asset-based fees in your brokerage account. Totally legal. This is not a problem. Um, and so that's what they started doing. So now, now weren't, weren't brokers supposed to be transaction based? Yes. So, right. And during all this time, somewhere around 1990 and probably before for many of them, brokers started kind of rebranding themselves as financial advisors. But the beauty of it was they were charging asset based fees. They were calling themselves financial advisors, but they weren't held to this fiduciary standard and they weren't required to be regulated sort of in the same way that independent registered investment advisors were regulated. So they were subject to less compliance. They were also, um, again, they, they, they were able to sort of call themselves advisors without having to meet the fiduciary standard. And so it was a pretty good deal for them. And I'm certain that clients didn't fully understand it. There have been several studies kind of showing that even today, clients don't really understand Nobody the difference right, between a fiduciary and a non-fiduciary. So this was a sweet deal for brokers. And not not surprisingly, the Financial Planning Association, which is a, was a group of independent investment advisors, registered investment advisors, the fiduciaries, were furious. They filed a lawsuit in 2004 saying this rule blurs the distinction between us and them. Right. Um, despite the lawsuit that was pending, the SEC sort of 
this rule became law in 2005. But then in 2007, the FPA actually won the lawsuit. And this was absolutely not expected. Um, but they won the lawsuit. And the, the result was the SEC said, OK, brokers, here's the deal. You can still call yourselves advisors. So the FPA didn't get, get that off the table. But if you want to be charging asset-based fees in your brokerage accounts, you're going to have to register with the SEC as a registered investment advisor. And so, of course, many of these brokers were already registered as investment advisors with the SEC, but they weren't doing a lot of business in those accounts. And right. so some of them were, some of them, some of them had that registration, some didn't. Those who didn't quickly went and registered. Those who did just started shifting assets over wholesale from their brokerage clients to the RIA space. And this made them actually look good, right? So they said, oh, "Oh, we were swaggy brokers and now we're good guys, but your fees stay the same and you won't notice any difference. Okay. So, so where's the problem here? So, you know, the, the problem effectively is that because brokers are held to a different standard historically, they were held to what's called a suitability standard, meaning effectively they couldn't sell you something that was sort of obviously and overtly bad for you, but they weren't required necessarily to act in your best interest. And they clearly had conflicts in the sense that um, they'd have strong incentives to sell you the products that paid them the highest commissions. Registered investment advisors, fiduciaries, are not effectively, they can still charge commissions. It's a little bit of a, it's a bit of a gray line, but in spirit, they're supposed to be behaving in a way that is in the client's best interest, disclosing conflicts, mitigating, eliminating them if possible or whatever. But so the problem really was that my paper shows that this did not hurt the the broker side at all. So first of all, what happened was they just said, great, we'll just move everybody to RIA accounts. And as we open new client accounts, what we saw is a huge shift in commission-based revenue, making up about 20% of their total revenues in 2003, 2004, call it, right, to right. about 50% in 2016. And so the dual registrants started, yes, yeah, so they started shifting existing clients and bringing in new clients in their um, in their asset-based space, in their fiduciary space. And so again, that all sounds fine, right? We're suddenly fiduciaries. But what my paper shows is that they really didn't change their behavior. And so I can speak more to sort of what that means. But despite the fact that they were registered with the SEC, they were regulated as fiduciaries, they weren't, in my opinion, behaving as and in with within the spirit of the fiduciary standard. So they were most, in many cases, certainly not all, meeting the letter of the law, although there are plenty of disciplinary actions that we'll talk about later, but the spirit was certainly not necessarily being met. And so the independent registered investment advisors who had this sort of big win, it turned out not to really be much of a win for them. They're just a shift in doing business by the big firms and the big firms were still able to, I mean, they have about, I don't know, call it 85% of the total assets in this space. So, so one of the, one of the things consumer advocates are always concerned about here is that the the funds that are getting recommended are ones that pay the brokers bigger commissions, and they also tend to underperform. You know, and part of the reason is, you know, the the companies that uh, run these funds they don't attract money by being good at their jobs as much as they do by paying the brokers to distribute their funds. Yeah. So here. When, when when the money moved from the brokerage side to the RAA side, did do it? Were, were did investors get different funds? Did 
did they move did their money so so it's they're, they're being managed in a different way they're paying a different fee uh but are they getting allocated to different kinds of assets yeah you know it's that's such a great question and it was actually probably the most important question as I was trying to put this paper together. And the answer that I am quite confident is true is that no, they're not, uh-huh. they're not being allocated to anything differently. And I have kind of several angles by which I look at that, but let me talk about sort of the most obvious. And so you can think of a fund company and I'm going to just choose Oppenheimer here as an example. They're a big company and they fit into this category. I'm yeah. not picking on them as having bad funds or anything like that. But just using Oppenheimer as an example, in the brokerage space, what happened is the broker would sell you an Oppenheimer fund, call it the value fund. I made that up. I don't know if that's even a real fund, but call it the value fund. And the broker would sell you a fund and it would have a commission attached to it. Now, the commission was complicated. It might be up front. It might be over time. It might be some combination of if you pull it out early, you pay a higher fee and you still pay some over time. But in ABC some way, does. the broker is being compensated with commission. These are like load funds, call it A, B, and C shares and any number of other share classes. So what happened is that Oppenheimer had a very strong relationship with XYZ brokerage firm, right? They knew all the brokers. They knew all the managers. They took them out for dinner. They sponsored conferences. Their swag was all over the office. And the wholesalers had, you know, this is their job and they're good at it. They had strong personal relationships with all these brokers. So what happens? Well, 2007 comes along, Financial Planning Association wins, and Oppenheimer is not stupid. And Oppenheimer says, we want to, you know, maintain these relationships. And so they started offering, and many of these were already offered before 2007, what's called an institutional share class of the value fund. Now, this institutional share class doesn't have a direct commission because in the RIA space, it's sort of frowned upon to have both commissions and asset-based fees. Not that that doesn't happen, but it's generally like a big red flag. If it doesn't have a a commission, is it cheaper? So this is the thing. So on the surface, it's cheaper in the sense that there's no direct commission attached to it. But let's just use a simple example. If the if the load fund was paying, call it a call it a one percent annual fee, right. um, and so you know that's the additional load, that's the commission that's going to the broker. What happened again in many of these firms is that the broker would now become an RIA, switch his hat. He would say, hey, I'm a fiduciary now. I can't sell you a commission-based fund. So I'm going to keep you in this Oppenheimer value fund that you've been in forever. And I'm just going to switch you to the institutional share class. I'm going to charge you, instead of collecting a commission, I'm going to charge you an asset-based fee. And what my research shows pretty clearly is those asset-based fees tend to be higher than the fees that were charged when they were earning a commission. And so again, These are averages. These are disclosed fees. I can't say for sure that every client was paying these, but the median was closer to 2% a year than 1% a year. So I'm switching you from from the Oppenheimer Value Fund C share to the Oppenheimer Value Fund institutional share. I'm now a fiduciary, but I'm charging you a higher fee on top of that. And there's not a lot of evidence in my analyses that show that there's much additional advice being given. So it's not like, oh, I'm charging you more, but I'm going to really be a better monitor and I'm going to do more financial planning. That doesn't seem to be the case, at least based on the disclosures I can see. Even more automated birthday cards. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And so the first thing really is that the relationship between Oppenheimer and the broker was still strong. Oppenheimer fund is in all the accounts. And now the broker who has turned RIA can probably earn a higher fee or at the very least, if we want to be generous, he's not taking a pay cut. 
Um, one other thing that's really important with respect to these load fund families, Oppenheimer, Putnam, you know, you can think of lots of these MFS. Um, they're again, these are not inherently evil funds, but as you say, they're bought. I'm sorry, they're sold, not bought. And right. so the broker space is all about selling. You switch over to an RIA, you still have the sales culture kind of in your blood, right? Right. And so, and you know these guys and you know these funds. And in many cases, the brokers themselves really do believe these are the best funds. Now, this yeah. is partly because they don't have a lot of exposure. The firms know what's going on, right? Yeah. But the brokers themselves don't have a lot of exposure to say no load funds that might be performing better or a cheaper ETF that is an index, right? These are all mostly actively right. managed funds. It's hard to charge a commission on a, on a passively managed funds. Brokers who can do that are the magic salespeople, right? They can sell anything. But mostly these are active managers. And so there's academic research, and I'm not the first to show this. There's a great paper by Diane Del Garcia and Jonathan Reuter, 2014, that was published in the Journal of Finance. And they show very strong evidence that load fund families underperform. So if Oppenheimer's a load fund family and their average fund underperforms, both gross and net of fees and loads, by the way. So this isn't just fees are higher. Um, then, of course, their institutional share class underperforms as well because it's the right. exact same fund. Right. Same so Andrew, my paper fund. kind of, yeah, my paper kind of piggybacks on that and says, okay, yeah, this is great. You're going into institutional classes. That is better, right? They're cheaper. But if you're charging an equal to or greater than fee, not providing additional service, and it's the same underperforming fund, it's hard for me to see a, a really strong value add for the client. Yeah. So, so to get ready for this and to help people understand, uh, I ran some numbers on, oh, good. on what 1% underperformance means. Uh, you know, so, so the, the little, you know, stylized example here is, is if, sure. if you have, you know, a fund that underperforms the market by just 1%. And if you, if you invest a hundred thousand dollars into that and the market averages, you know, 8% a year for a decade, that'll grow to about two hundred and $22,000 with the 1% in fees. If you, if you're not getting that market return, you're just getting 7%. You, you end up with about $20,000 less, uh, and you're just at 201,000. So if you, if you, if you go another 10 years and you go for 20 years, the gap grows even more. So you, the market, you know, 8% return would give you nearly half a million dollars at 495,000 where you're at just, Four hundred and five thousand ninety, you know, ninety thousand dollars less. Yep. The under, so that like this, the the gap here just just gets huge. It gets really big, and it's a big deal because, um, you know, there's a whole nother world of investment. Uh, there's a whole nother world of investing that just isn't necessarily available to retail clients of these firms, and you know that would be low cost passive funds, exchange traded funds. Um, and even if you're paying a fee for those, you're you're still kind of net better off probably long term. So I agree. It's it's a really interesting point that you make. And you're right. These are real dollars like this is not this is these are this is substantial. Yeah. If you're if you're retiring and uh, your your family or your your grandkids are in uh, you retire down to Florida, your grandkids are in New York and you want them to fly down and go to Disney with you. It's, you, you can't buy as many plane tickets. You exactly, you know, this, this translates into, you know, you, you miss out on things. You do, you do. And you don't know you're missing out. And I think that's the part that's really frustrating is that the industry is set up in so many ways to be 
very opaque, to obfuscate, to be kind of sales-based, to only disclose when asked. And then those disclosures are often either a giant brochure that's really hard to read or a little bit of a brush off with the trust me. And I worry a lot about that. I worry a lot about individuals. I worry far less about fraud. I mean, yeah, there's tons of fraud and, and that's terrible, but I worry far more about like what we're talking about with is just this kind of slow erosion of just mediocre advice, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, so I, I think about it as, as opportunity cost blindness, uh, where, you know, someone, someone who's in this situation and the market's going up 8% and they're going up seven or they're going up uh, six, uh, let's say they've right. got 2% in fees. You know, they come into their meeting with their financial advisor at the end of the year, the market's gone up eight, they've gone up six and assume they, you know, the kind of person that should be just holding the market. Right. The advisor says, I would assume, uh, congratulations, you've had a great year. You've gone yeah. up six. That's yeah. an enormous return. Uh, yeah. You stayed a steady course. And with me by your side, we'll keep sailing smoothly into the future. Yeah. And, and like, is there, I, I, how do you, if you're, if you're not benchmarking in this way, how do you know? I mean, that's the thing. It's just there, you know, obviously there's this sort of huge lack of information. Um, and it's very easy as an advisor to sort of um, smooth that over or to sort of convince your client that, they really are getting some something for your advice. And, you know, I'll say it's it, one of the questions that's really important that's very hard to answer is, you know, are clients that use these advisors better off than DIY? And the answer really depends. I mean, I would argue that if you know nothing about investing and you have an advisor who's not necessarily dishonest, but perhaps is um, is self is self-interested, you are probably better off than, you know, certainly than not putting any money away. But most of the work in that space sort of shows that, you know, it's the the value of kind of putting the money away while it's useful. The amount of money that's sort of left on the table, like you say, opportunity cost is really substantial. And so as for investors, it's not that, you know, we need to hold everybody's hand and, you know, people should be responsible and people should try to understand these things. But this industry is actively fighting against that in many ways, um, even just in like the, the commission-based mutual fund space. I mean, I spent a year working for a broker and it took me like six months to fully understand how he got paid. And he wasn't in a hurry to tell me, right? So I had to read a million disclosures and try to understand it. And I was like a pretty smart person with a degree. So I think that it's very easy to think <laughs> that you're not paying anybody anything yeah. um, when, when the fees are kind of sort of snuck in there. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a big problem. Um, it seems that the SEC's, you know, talking about trying to address it, but boy, I, I don't really see that that any of these new regulations are going to make much of a difference in that space. And if anything, it could make things worse. Yeah, no, the the, the new uh, regulation best interest uh, and the revised interpretation of the Investment Advisors Act, uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to review. You know, I've been looking at these. I I I, I agree with your assessment. Uh, I don't think it's going to you know, make any kind of significant change. Uh, you I mean, know, it's thirteen hundred pages long, so maybe that gives you a clue about what's going on. You know. Right. So, so one, one, you know, one, one thing that might be interesting to look at uh, is to sort of get an answer on. So, so for, for those not, you know, in the know, the SEC, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago just released regulation best interest, uh, which is a, a change to the broker dealer standard and some new interpretations, um, you know, of the, the Investment Advisors Act. And it was sort of billed as this, this increase uh, to the standards for investment advice. But when you, when you really get down to it, uh, 
it, it sort of changes the terminology a little bit. Uh, it has some, some improvements in some areas like rollovers, but it's, it's not, um, it's not that significant. No, I mean, I agree with you. And I think, you know, one of the really weird esoteric things about all of this, and I try to sort of write concisely and cohesively about this, but it's kind of weird and complicated is that the way the world thinks now, or at least the way that regulators seem to think about investment advice is either it's commission or it's asset-based, right? Asset-based fees. And because of that regulatory change in 2007, because of the FPA winning, that became kind of codified. And so what's really weird is that even if a broker wants to work in your best interest, he's not a large he's not allowed to charge asset-based fees unless he becomes a registered investment advisor. So sort of by definition, because he gets commissions, you know, it's just this very strange kind of way to think about the world where the way you should think about the world is, you know, let's minimize, mitigate, and eliminate as many conflicts of interest as we can. And then we'll think about how we charge our clients. But instead, what happens is, the way the world works is, well, are you charging commissions? Then you're a broker and you're in this box. Oh, are you charging an asset-based fee? Even if it's ridiculously high and you're not really doing much for it, well, then you become a fiduciary. And it's just a backwards way of looking at it. And so, but I think because it's kind of codified that way, it it makes it really difficult to regulate. And so what ends up happening is you have 1,300 pages of words that don't necessarily make much sense. And the reality is that if you could find a way, in my opinion, for brokers who aren't actually giving investment advice, and there are some of them, then they're brokers. And I feel like everybody else somehow needs to find a way to, to you know, reduce these conflicts. But the conflicts are massive. Um, relationships with mutual fund families, sales of proprietary products, um, cross-selling of insurance products. Insurance companies are some of the worst offenders in my space. Oh, yeah. you know? They tell you in their forms, you know, hey, we are going to get you in the door and we are going to try to sell you a whole bunch of stuff, including insurance products and annuities and all this business. You don't have to buy them, but we're going to try to sell them to you. Like it's so overt yet, you know, they're, they're registered investment advisors. So like the thing that I want to yell from the rooftops about my paper is that don't worry so much about the brokers. The issue is that we have a ton of registered investment advisors who are dual registered, who make up the vast majority of assets under management, and they are not behaving as fiduciaries. And to me, that's a far bigger problem than trying to regulate the brokerage space. And I know I don't see eye to eye with everybody on that, including some of the people who, with whom I respect very much. But I feel like you got to get that house in order before you start worrying about the brokers. Yeah, no, that's, there's there's conflicts all over the waterfront here. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so sometimes I, I feel like the uh, the, the investor population is sort of like uh, you know, a lot of investor protection is is sort of the way we would protect our um, our fish. Uh, we want to make sure that we are there that that the, the there's enough you know fish in the sea that we can keep pulling them out. Yeah, you know, we're not really <laughs> we're not really looking out for uh, you know the fish so much as our ability to continue harvesting. It's a really interesting point. Yeah. And I think a lot about that. I think a lot about some of the conflicts. And I mean, my paper shows very strongly that the number of disciplinary actions against the dual registrants 
is just massive. And the number of disciplinary actions against independent RIAs is basically non-existent. Now, obviously, there are lots of reasons why that's true. Dual registrants are bigger. They're under much, much higher scrutiny. But still, the conflicts that they have lead to the potential for bad behavior. And so I always like to think about the kid who's 22 years old. He, he may or may not have gone, gone to college and he's like, dude, I want to make a lot of money. So in the old days, he'd go work for my dad and sell cars, right? right? But now my dad's retired, so he's like, fine. So he goes and he works for some big old firm, goes to work for Ameriprise and they, they give him this three-hour test and he's like, good to go. And now he's a financial advisor. And I worry a lot about that because the firm itself, if anyone's, you know, if we're going to sort of place blame, it's not on that 22 year old. I mean, he may be not very bright and, and maybe not even very ethical, but he has been put into a business that is definitely going to reward him for big sales. And he can look at his pay schedule. Now, Reg BI is improving some of that on the brokerage side, but certainly on the RIA side, I mean, if his whole life is spent going to conferences sponsored by load mutual funds and he has a list of funds that his that his firm gives him and says these are the funds you sell he's probably not going out there looking for some ETF that has the S&P 500 underneath it right and so it's just the process is so structured so that the firms themselves know exactly what they're doing the individual brokers i mean some of them are shady some of them are just kind of you know Guys who kind of got stuck in a weird place. Yeah, just a bunch of guys, you know. So it's just a really, um, it's a really interesting business. And and Reg BI is addressing that on the brokerage side, but not on the RIA side. And so, um, you know, it's hard to sort of understand fully what goes on inside that space unless you go talk to a bunch of these guys. And I go talk to these guys, and the stories they tell me are kind of horrific. I worked for a broker; he wasn't particularly. I don't know, ethical in every way possible. But but I think it's really easy to get sort of stuck in that mindset where you're you're in you're in a sales culture, you know, and those jobs you can make a whole bunch more money as a twenty two year old, you know, RIA who doesn't know much than you can sell in cars. And so, you know, there's a lot of um there's a lot of potential in that space for both greed and abuse. And you talk to a guy ten years later and he's like, Oh man, that wasn't great as he gets a little bit wiser. So yeah, no. So, so it's. I think it's a really important point to make that the the people who work in the industry, they're people. They're they're not. Uh, they're they're primates like the rest of us, and right. many of them are, you know, very like they try to do the best they can. But if they're operating in an environment uh, where sort of the the menu they have to offer to their clients is set by the firm, yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that the. It's sort of like imagine if you the, the way the business structure is set up. Uh, you imagine if McDonald's uh, hired nutritionists to help you pick uh, options from its menu. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, you're left with some some lettuce, I guess, right? Yeah, you you have, you have some some wilted iceberg uh, occasionally, <laughs> but you know, for the most part, you know, the action is is uh, around the Big Macs. So yeah, yeah, for sure. No, for sure, it's a great example. And so I think it's just a complicated business. And I think honestly, I go back and forth between we need to regulate the heck out of this. And I just, that frustrates me. I don't, I don't see that moving the needle and we have to educate investors, which boy, that's hard too, right? That's a whole other podcast about financial literacy, something I like to talk and think about. Um, But at the end of the day, my advice were I to give it to, to clients or to people who, people who talk to young people is, and, and, and 
you know, less informed investors is, you know, stay away from the dual registrants. If you've heard of the name, right. it, it, you know, it might not be the best place to go. Try to try to find an advisor who is who is more independent, who is not necessarily affiliated with the dual registrant. Some of those guys are good guys. I know some of them. They're really good guys and they're not shady. But just on the surface, the conflicts are going to be lower for an independent advisor. So that's a better place to start. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Beware the enemy! 